Uh, We're reading from Ephesians 5 this morning. Uh, As usual, it's on the screen behind me or in the leaflet as you came in. So Ephesians 5, beginning at verse 15. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, Submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. The two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honour your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favour when their eye is on you, But as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart, serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favouritism with him. Well, thanks, Kelly, and good morning again, everyone. If you've joined us in the last two or three years, chances are you would have been to, or at least been invited along to Belong, a newcomer's course, where over four evenings we help people new to us work out what we're passionate about as a church, what drives us, and how if you decide to make us your church family, you can take next steps to feel like you really belong, hence the name. 
On the first night, we explore the biblical concept of the Christian life being all about living for God's glory, magnification as we call it. As one of the illustrations that I use to explain this, uh, I use the Copernican Revolution, which is unfortunate because I can very rarely pronounce that properly more than uh, once in a row, but it comes from a guy called Nicholas Copernicus, who in 1543 published his theory challenging the prevailing view that the sun, stars and planets all revolved around the earth. Popped a diagram up on uh, screen there that shows this, uh, what you would call geocentric understanding of the universe. That's a word for the day for our note takers. But Copernicus put forward a theory that the universe, in fact, was heliocentric, centered around the sun. There's a bonus uh, word for the day uh, for you there as well, that everything uh, revolved around the sun, as shown on this second diagram here. And while not fully grasping the nature of the universe, it was actually a huge step forward in how we understood our solar system and it became known as the Copernican Revolution, changing the way we see our world and our place in the universe. I use this illustration at Belong, uh, which is a course for people who are already followers of Jesus, to make the point that the maturing Christian life is all about placing God at the centre of all things. And I'm up front with people that if you're looking for a church that will let you keep Jesus in a sort of little self-contained spirituality sphere orbiting around your goals and priorities, that this may not actually be the church for you because you'll find us pretty frustrating, uh, continually urging all people to put God at the centre of all things, not ourselves. And Ephesians 1, where we started uh, six weeks ago, is the text that we use to make this point, that God doesn't exist to orbit around us and our life goals and priorities. Rather, as we understand who Jesus is and grow to maturity in Christ, this Copernican revolution takes place as we mature and we increasingly sort of bring our understanding of the world and how we live our life uh, to God being at the centre and we live for his glory in this world. Now that's an easy enough kind of uh, shift to grasp conceptually and as I explain it belong there's usually lots of you know nodding around the room uh, going on but for years I've kind of had the nagging question in my mind what evidence can we look to in our life together that might only sort of um, show that we not only grasp the concept, but actually live it out in the world in our lives today. And today I want us to help us understand that the book of Ephesians answers that question for us in a very practical way. It would be great to have your Bible reading open in front of you there, and as you find it, dig it out, the leaflet, open up your phone. I'll take you through sort of a brief journey of where we've been in recent weeks through the series. Because we started off six weeks ago unpacking Paul's great hymn of praise at the start of chapter one, which is a favourite Bible passage of many, as we uh, have recalled that through Christ, God has given us every spiritual blessing. And as a result, we are to live for the praise of his glory. And Paul's prayer for the Ephesian church in chapter 1 is that they may know God better 
trusting in God's great power at work in the church. Uh, Philip then helped us in week two to focus in on verses 9 and 10 of chapter 1, where we see God's great plan revealed for the world to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In chapter 2, we're encouraged to walk differently in our world, not chasing futile things, but rather walking in the good works God has prepared for us in advance to do. Chapter 3, we saw that it's in the church that God is doing a work of such spiritual significance that it actually displays God's manifold wisdom in the heavenly realms to the powers and authorities that stand against God. So Paul, again, as this chapter comes to a close, turns to prayer, asking for a great work of God's power in our hearts by his Spirit, that we may dwell in these truths and grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ for us. And after explaining all that God has done for us in Jesus in the first three chapters, we then kind of make the turn in the book to chapter 4 as we are all urged to live a life worthy of such a high calling as a church corporately together as we bear with one another in love, holding on to unity as one body through one spirit. And we see Jesus gifting the church through the ministry of the word to be built up, to become unified, to, well, to kind of, we are unified in Christ, but to kind of express and kind of grow into that unity, treasuring it, protecting it, as we become more mature in the faith. Then last week, Jamie unpacked for us that As a result, we see that some of our old ways of living in this world just don't kind of fit us anymore, like clothes that we've grown out of. And as people seeking to display God's manifold wisdom in the heavenly realms together, providing our world a picture of, of kind of like a foretaste of where our world is going as God unifies us under Christ... As God does that, we are to put behind us all manner of ways that we used to walk in, including unwholesome talk, bitterness, sexual immorality, greed, just to name a few. We're told Ephesians 4 verse 11, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. And in this context that we come to today's passage which kind of as it kind of progresses this whole line of thought which is going through Ephesians, it kind of draws it together for us with a solemn challenge. Verse 15 of today's reading there in front of you, where we hear, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. That kind of contrast between wise and unwise living is the first of three uh, three contrasts brought out for us here. And uh, wisdom, like many of these things, has been quite a theme through the book where we uh, see back in chapter 1 that God has lavished his wisdom upon us, revealing the great mystery of his salvation plans for the world, revealing the mystery of his will and calling his church here on earth to display God's wisdom here on earth. Verse 17 then draws a contrast between foolishness and understanding God's will, because that's 
how foolishness is defined in the Bible, failing to appreciate and take on board or to understand the will of the Lord. And this is in the context of God revealing himself and his will through his word in the church as we grow to maturity. And the final contrast given there is between drunkenness and being filled with God's spirit, enabling us to live out our calling together. And as kind of Paul unpacks what this spirit-filled life or spirit-filled walk, uh, sort of more literally, he chooses three key areas to focus on. Of all the things he could have said at this point, he focuses on singing, thanksgiving, and perhaps most surprisingly for us, and dealt with at far greater length, this idea of submitting to one another. Verses 18 and 19 are uh, kind of classic verses as we look to see what the role of singing corporately together is in church, bringing out the two directions in which we sing, to one another and to the Lord. Singing does bring into play the affections and emotions, for most of us at least, which is a good thing because we're told to do it from the heart. And perhaps as a taster to a much wider discussion over coffee, it's good to think through whether it's music, our musical style and preferences that is most effective in engaging the emotions or is it coming from a heart to build up our brothers and sisters in Christ as we sing and to praise God together through well-chosen lyrics that represent great truths of God's word for us. Is it that that generates emotion? One of the turns of phrase Kelly and I have stolen from somewhere as we think about the interplay between word and spirit being together and song choice is that we really ask our sort of what we call our magnification teams to be advocates of authentic emotion. Our mag teams, as we call them, incorporate musicians, sound singers, preachers, Bible readers and our prayers here on Sunday. And I think they are taking great strides together in advocating authentic emotions amongst us. And in the increasingly rare situations where, you know, a song is sort of not well introduced or well chosen or something, it really stands out. And uh, we continually get feedback for those who've been around here in a while, for a while, just how much our services are increasingly growing together. And that's due to the work of a great team under Kelly's leadership uh, on that in advocating authentic emotions. So please keep praying for our mag teams. Sometimes it's a really well-considered prayer that reflects on God's word coming out of a sermon that kind of just leads you to that sort of very sort of raw state before God which brings a, a tear to the eye and it's, it's a wonderful thing then to be led into and to be able to sing together. It's the great outpouring of praise to God and to want to build each other up as we send each other out into the week. Please pray that as we gather, God may be glorified and honoured and that through our corporate times together, it might just be one other aspect of how God's manifold wisdom is displayed to our world and in the heavenly realms. Thanksgiving is Paul's second fruit of the Spirit uh, in verse 20 there, which 
you notice, you know from experience, you can't just kind of conjure up thanksgiving. You can't be just commanded to be giving uh, thanks and for it actually to come from the heart. Which is why I think as we read these verses, we need to continually be looking back on the things that Ephesians has already unpacked for us. That through our growing understanding of what God has done for us in Jesus, in his church, as chapters uh, 1 to 3 outline, uh, that heart of thanksgiving comes much more freely. Hence Paul's two great prayers for the church, that we might know him better, trusting in God's power at work in the church to be the church, to display God's manifold wisdom. And called with that high calling, we also note we are empowered for the task with the same power that God unleashed to raise Jesus from the dead. Thus the heartfelt prayer of Paul that through the Spirit we might become mighty within, grasping the depths of God's love for us. A maturing church seeking to live a life worthy of its calling, serving one another in love, seeing God's power at work, singing to one another to build each other up, praising the God who we're getting to know better, does result in thanksgiving. But it's the next fruit of the Spirit-filled life, submission, that we do not expect. And in this cultural moment particularly, for many of us, it jars like the needle scratching across the record as the music stops, as we hear verses 21 and 22. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Now if you're here today with us just checking out who Jesus is, you may be wondering whether you're going to be asked to enter a time warp back to the 1950s or earlier. And let me assure you you that that is not the case. But it's worth acknowledging, however, that these are tricky verses to navigate faithfully without stripping these words of their power or their clear intent. It was a very wise John Stott who once said, and I've got this uh, up on screen, the biblical word submission is often as expounded as if it were a synonym for subjection, subordination and even subjugation. All these words have emotive associations and submission is no exception. We have to try and disinfect it of these and to penetrate into its essential biblical meaning. This we shall discover neither from modern associations nor even from its etymology word study, but primarily from the way it is used in context in Ephesians 5. To start with, the big picture storyline hanging in the air across our world is our long history of enmity and power struggle between the sexes. As Christians, we're told in the opening chapters of the Bible that this struggle is linked to humanity's fall as together we rejected God as our king. And regardless of your worldview, I don't think it's contentious to say that because of the natural advantage of strength that men have, 
women have come off a lot worse for that power struggle in most cultures and times and places. There is much to lament in the suffering of women and girls in many times and places, including, sadly, sometimes within God's family, his church. There is much that I hope we can all affirm in our world's push for equal pay in the workplace, empowering women's voices, taking down those who misuse power to sexually abuse, and our desire to free our homes in Australia from the all-too-silent epidemic of domestic violence. But the question in my mind, as I've reflected on it this week, is what is God calling for in Christian marriage? What is distinctive about it in contrast to the way our world is heading? And how does it display the manifold wisdom of God? Let's have a closer look together. Firstly, it comes in the context of God setting the tone for all of our relationships in every direction. This is a call to everyone in the church as we're called to live a life worthy of the gospel. Chapter 4 verse 2 sets the tone for each one of us where we are all told, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. And as we come into Ephesians 5, it develops this further, calling each of us to show a self-sacrificial love to the other. Verses 1 and 2 are on screen. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And the second point I would note as we try and unpack this is that as the first century hearers of Ephesians, its first sort of audience, heard this, the idea that wives should submit to husbands, children to parents, slaves to masters, would not have raised an eyebrow. And I think it's part of the reason that what it looks like uh, for a, a wife to submit here isn't really kind of filled out in any great detail for us. Because what would have been shockingly countercultural in a patriarchal society was how the loving, other person centered, self sacrificial tone that is to mark all of our relationships applies to husbands. And I realise there's you know, a four-part sermon series on marriage we could do here, but I thought of the one thing I would really like to draw your attention to that I often think is overlooked as this passage is looked at, is that in all the relationships listed, the goal is the same as God's purposes for his church here on earth. So what's God's plan for the church? Well, we were told back in chapter 1 that through God's sovereign choice through Jesus' death on the cross and work in the church, through the ministry of the word, the plan is for every member of the church together to be presented holy and blameless in God's sight, unified under Christ. So the goal, therefore, for guys in marriage is to give of themselves in loving, in a self-sacrificial way, to serve their wives to the same end. As Paul explains to us, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, 
cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. Our world looks at marriage rightly concerned about men's long history of misusing power for their own gratification. With good intent, our world seeks a remedy, but it never seems entirely clear how that's achieved. And so far, it seems to have been met with very limited success, sadly. God's vision for marriage, however, comes up with something that I think is entirely different. It's an entirely different solution to sort of our questions of who has the power here, who has the authority, who makes the decisions. I think what Ephesians 5 is painting for us here is a solution entirely different. It is not seeking to kind of equate power, but asks both women and men to lay down their arms and not vie for it at all but rather lovingly serve the other for the other's ultimate good. Both in a self-sacrificial way, but with men particularly called to be self-denying, as I read it put so well this week, putting the total well-being and spiritual perfection of his wife above his own desires. Because that's how Christ has shown his love for the church. Now, I realise how many questions that generates. Go hard on the SMS question uh, time and uh, you can make me earn it today and I'll do my best to answer them in a moment. But for now, note it's this same desire for peace and loving service within the church that drives the instruction for children to obey their parents. Uh, It mirrors what... Jesus is doing in the church. Jesus gifts the church with those who can minister the word so it can be well well instructed, growing to maturity. Hence, fathers are called to the same task in the home and not uh, to exasperate their children with arbitrary rules, but instead bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Now, we had a three-week series on work recently which touched on verses 5 to 9 of today's passage in great detail uh, regarding slaves and masters and some of the parallels that has to our work today. But for now, note just what a counter-cultural picture of a relationship with perhaps the most dramatic power and balance of the three that we can imagine. Imagine in the slave-master relationship being conducted in a peaceful, gentle, other person-centred display of the power of the gospel at work to the heavenly realms as both slave and master sit down as ch- in church as equals, called to self-sacrificial love of the other, because before God they are equal. But before we draw this all together, I think it's immensely important to take a few minutes to talk about what I would call the impossible application of these verses. Very sadly, some in the church have weaponized some of today's verses on submission and headship to control women and to keep them in violent 
and abusive situations. Having worked through the passage, I don't think I need to go through it again to highlight just how unchristlike that is. But sadly also, historically, due to a lack of training and insight, as well as a good concern for a high view of marriage, Christian leaders haven't always helped the situation as people have come forward with stories of abuse, which I would say has to change. So guys, if this is something that you struggle with, and the statistics suggest that there's far more people in our lives than we realise, whether it's here at church, at the school drop-off or in the workplace. But for Christian guys, if this is something that you struggle with, do take the very important step to bring this sin to light, as we are encouraged to do with all sin in last week's passage. Find a brother in Christ you trust to bring this to light. And of course... Discretion and confidentiality are important. But as you bring it forward, don't lay it upon the person you share it with, uh, with the burden of telling no one else. I can tell you from experience, that's a hard task uh, to carry. And I would say that you do need a brother in Christ to help with this, plus pastoral, plus professional help. And for the women here who may be under the controlling abuse of another, or whether you're listening along online, please hear very clearly, we will support you in taking whatever steps are necessary for you to be safe today. And if you want to continue to work on your marriage, it can only be done safely if this abuse is brought into the light. Godliness, respecting your husband and submission does not include to submitting to control and abuse. One of the biggest blockers of women coming forward is the financial complexity, housing and particularly children. They're all factors that work towards making someone feel trapped. But it doesn't have to be that way. It's loving to your kids and your husbands to bring this to light. Joe, who is on our staff team, is one of the most passionate and well-read people in ministry here in Adelaide on domestic violence, and we've been working very hard to keep up with her and to follow uh, her lead on being better equipped. Uh, there's support numbers in the leaflet, as well as Joe's email and mine. But to try and draw Ephesians together for now, before the kind of rousing send-off of the last part of Ephesians 6 next week, what have we seen? Well, I think what's been laid out for us is a real Copernican revolution, helping us to see that God is at the centre of all things and the Christian life is to be lived in every facet for the praise of his glory. Yet the question I posed at the start is how do we know this isn't just a concept we've assented to in theory? What evidence can we see that we're really living this out in a way that honours God? 
And I think for me, perhaps for the first time, as someone who's kind of bounced off Ephesians 1 to kind of make this point in many belong series, that I think it's really the rest of Ephesians which is the answer to that question. I think our struggle in our time, in our church, I think it's possible to understand who Jesus is, to be thankful for the gospel, his life, death and resurrection for us yet still live our lives effectively with us at the centre, without that Copernican revolution taking place. I think our great uh, encouragement that we get from our world today is to live with our households being the very centre of who we are, the defining characteristic of who I am. And we think about all of life, including church, with my household at the centre choosing to you know, engage on my terms with a church of my choosing. Ephesians, however, shows us that the maturing disciple of Jesus finds their primary identity in being a child of God, with our first responsibility being part of God's church here on earth as the place where we use our gifts to self-sacrificially serve others as we go, grow to maturity in Christ together under the word. And as we get to know God better and grasp the depths of his love for us, that having had Christ deal with our sin, knowing we can approach God now with freedom and confidence, I think it's God's church here on earth that kind of models and displays God's manifold wisdom in the heavenly realms as a, a people who don't live in fear of God anymore, who don't live in uncertainty, who don't live in fear of death. Rather, we know God and who he is and that his love has been displayed for us in Christ so that we can approach God now with freedom and confidence. And that it's through God's church as the kind of the, the primary community where this peace that we have with God is displayed firstly in our relationships together and then also worked out across every facet of life in our households, uh, uh, with our parents and our children, in our work, in every facet, all of them seeking to bring peace where there was once conflict, all of them progressively kind of unwinding the effects of the fall uh, as uh, we're encouraged here today to do in Christian marriage for those of us who are married. Sort of dealing with that kind of enmity and struggle that has been existent across our world across time and actually seeing both uh, parties, men and women, voluntarily laying down arms and lovingly serving one another for the same purposes as Christ serves the church. I think when we get that together, that is when the church really displays the manifold wisdom of God in the heavenly realms and shows our world a picture of peace and unity and love and self-sacrifice that is a foretaste for our world and where this whole world is going as God brings people together and unifies everything in the earthly and heavenly realms under Christ. And if you're anything like me, <laughs> as you consider these things, you'll be very aware of how far short uh, we fall of such things. I, uh, you know, 
probably one of the most challenging parts of being a pastor and reflecting on these things for for many more days uh, than you have just this morning is uh, for our own shortcomings uh, very much to come to mind. Which is why I think Ephesians finishes with that beautiful picture of God's power at work in his church by his spirit. This picture of the full armour of God given to us to be the church, to keep running to him like we have today as we've shared our meal of remembrance, knowing that our sins are forgiven, seeking and praying for God's empowerment to live as he calls us to, which is what we say every time we do communion together. We, We ask for God to help us to live out our calling in the world, to bring his salvation to many and for us Uh, to be the people that he calls us to be. It is for that great task we need to pray to a God who can do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine uh, for his power to be made mighty in us so that we can be the church that he calls us to be. Walking a new path together, displaying God's manifold wisdom. So I'm going to pray and uh, lead us in that prayer now. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us in Ephesians and we really thank you for those astounding opening three chapters which really develop and bring to light just the enormity of what you have done for us in Christ uh, that just bring out uh, what once was hidden uh, as a mystery has now been made clear by you, uh, through our Lord Jesus, through your word to us, of where all things are going in this world, that your great plan is to bring unity to all things, both in heaven and on earth under Christ. And we thank you as uh, we hear the good news of the gospel, that anyone can run to Jesus and be restored to relationship with you, that we can come to you with freedom and with confidence that we, uh, your spirit is given to us to empower us for the task. Please help us uh, to increasingly move you to the centre of all things in our life and for it not just to be a, a concept that we can mentally assent to, but something that plays out uh, in the life of the church and our relationships together as we pursue your purposes together in this world, but also across every sweep of our life in our personal godliness, in our relationships with one another, uh, in the marriages that exist here at church. Please help us to work out what that looks like uh, for children uh, to parents and uh, in the working context, in every sphere that we have, please help us to live in a way that brings great uh, glory and honour to you. Uh, may your spirit make us mighty within to, to grasp the depths of your love for us uh, so that we might uh, sing great praises to you, that we might sing to our brothers and sisters in Christ seeking to build each other up in these great truths, our hearts overflowing with thanksgiving. And in this very countercultural idea of uh, submitting uh, to one another, Please help us to do that as instructed in reverence uh, for Christ. And it's in his precious and very powerful name we pray. Amen.